Welcome to UO Today. I'm Paul Peppis, Director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Courtney Cox, Assistant Professor of Race and Sport in the Department of Indigenous Race and Ethnic Studies at the University of Oregon. She joined the UO faculty in the fall of 2019. Cox studies the cultural, political, and economic effects of global sport. Her current research focuses on girls and women competing in and covering basketball across the US, Russia, Senegal, and France. She's also interested in the advanced analytics in sports and how this quantitative aspect of the game can be studied qualitatively through both critical discourse analysis and ethnography. Prior to her academic career, Cox worked for ESPN, NPR affiliate KPCC, and the Los Angeles Sparks, a WNBA team. Thank you so much, Courtney, for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. So first, let's start at the beginning of your careers. <laughs> what led to your interest in broadcast sports journalism? You know, my route to journalism is a very strange one. I've always loved sports. I've been a sports fan all my life. My grandmother is this amazing uh, sports matriarch, had this, her house was like a museum. She had all these signs, I'm from Dallas, Dallas Cowboys, footballs from all these legendary players. Um, and so I think I had this very early on feeling of like sports is this thing that not only kind of brought my family together, but kind of kind of got me involved with my friends, whether we're on the playground or we're on a team. My dad was my first coach in soccer, which was very stressful environment. My dad's very competitive. So I think I had that early on love of sport that started first and I loved writing. Those are my two passions. And so that was kind of the natural fit, but it took me a while to get there. So I think for me, I peaked athletically around middle school as many of us <laughs> do, right? Um, and so I realized I had to find out where my place was. So I was an athletic trainer in high school. I knew I loved that. I loved rehabbing athletes. Mm -hmm. I was really concerned with kind of that toll that sport can also take on our bodies. Mm -hmm. um, and then I got to college and started working at the local TV station as as many of us do, and that's kind of how I fell into journalism and knew that telling stories through TV was kind of where I wanted to be and sport was my vehicle to get there. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of how I ended up there. And then after undergrad, my first job was at ESPN. So I think I just kind of fell into that and that became kind of my life uh, for a really long time. What did you do for the Sparks? I'm interested in that. Um, you know, I was- you in their marketing? Um, I worked team? on an initiative they had um, called Hashtag We Are Women. Mm. And for me, I wanted an end to a team I had worked on the journalism side mm -hmm. and at that time I was a PhD student and I wanted to think about um, the relationship between media organizations, sports organizations, why women are covered or not covered. Mm -hmm. And I, I just felt completely blind in the organizational space. I didn't have any experience there. And so for me, I reached out to them. I interviewed for the for a completely different job. And they hmm. were like, oh, based on your previous experience, we're going to put you on this campaign. Hmm. So I worked with the vice president of sales and service hmm. um, on this brand new initiative they were rolling out that they still actually implement today. So for me, it was an interest in, in not only developing my own knowledge and making sure I'm accountable to the people that I study, mm -hmm. but also getting that experience um, mm -hmm. and so that I kind of know what I'm speaking to and writing about in my research. Interesting. So you've already started to talk about it, but how did you, what led you to go from the sports journalism world into the academic study of sports and sports journalism? Yeah, um, I kind of fell into that. I, I was working full time and I decided to start a master's program also in journalism. And having this weird dichotomy between 
studying these things mm -hmm. that I was actually doing and realizing that there are definitely these disconnects between researchers and people that are actually within these industries was a very strange position for me to be in. Mm -hmm. And the more I got into it, I realized I first got into a master's program because a lot of journalists, people that work at ESPN, I worked with a lot of people that also taught broadcast and production classes mm -hmm. on the side. And I thought that was maybe what I wanted to do. Eventually, I get tired of being in a live truck all the time. And I say, OK, I want to go and teach classes. And so it was, for me, it was like my, I thought, my next career um, way down the line. And so I really fell in love with the research aspect. And it surprised me um, in a way that I felt like if I don't go for the PhD now, I won't do it. Mm -hmm. um, and so I kind of fell into it um, accidentally. And then it, it felt so natural because I felt like I could be that person in the room to push back um, on what scholars are saying ab about people that are working within the industry and vice versa. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. So. Um Tell, tell us about this field that you work in. So I don't know, is it called sports studies? I don't know what, what you call this field. It's a, it's a yeah. relatively young field of academic studies, yeah? yeah. So, so how do you characterize it? And then why is it an important field? Why, why should people in the academy be studying what you study? You know, it's a really interesting question about how we designate ourselves within fields mm -hmm. and in various areas. I like to think that my work is using sport as a vehicle to talk about other issues, okay. right? So I lo I, I'm a very strange animal in that I am in the in IRIS, Indigenous Race and Ethnic Studies, mm -hmm. and I'm thinking about issues of race, inequity, power in a particular way, mm -hmm. um, which completely fits my work. And there's also like the idea of coming from a communication background, a journalism background, there's sport communication. Mm -hmm. which is a very rich field that, um, like you said, is much younger than the larger communication field at large, but I think it also has these points of resonance in terms of identity representation within a media framework, so I also have some, some kinfolk there, right? And then there's this way that I'm also thinking about um, labor in a particular way that's very specific. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a thread across all the work that I do, whether I'm thinking about advanced analytics and thinking about collective bargaining agreements, mm -hmm. whether I'm thinking about labor as U.S. athletes are going overseas to compete, as you know, athletes from other countries are coming to the U.S. to compete. I'm thinking about how labor and global flows move, whether we're thinking about media, culture, technology. And so that's kind of the thread. So I find myself located within communication, within science and technology studies, um, within sport communication, and within a larger um, ethnic studies and black studies tradition. Okay, so you, again, you've already sort of anticipated my next question. So one of these areas that you focus on, you've spoken about labor and that clearly intersects, is race and, yeah. and the intersection between race and sports and the sports industry and, and uh, sports journalism. So what are some of the um, issues or problems or challenges currently in your view around uh, race and sports, race and the sports industry, race and sports journalism? What are the sort of pressing issues that people are studying and talking about? Yeah, I think for me, um, one of the things that this is kind of blending both my lived experience within the sports industry yeah. as well as the research is, I came across um, during my master's program, Dr. Lapchik, Dr. Richard Lapchik, he's in Florida. He does these longitudinal studies thinking about not only within sports um, leagues such as the NBA, NFL, Major League Baseball, the racial and gender makeups within those leagues, mm -hmm. as well as Associated Press, like thinking about the large sports editor and sports journalist bodies, who's covering these leagues, who's involved in the front offices, who's making these decisions, um, and how do those racial disparities play out? Um, and so thinking about it in a very quantitative way, like we know these disparities exist, we know some leagues are better than other leagues in terms of how they operate, 
really made me think about how those decisions resonate across what we consume in terms of media, mm -hmm. um, as well as the various ways that the decisions that are made within these leagues kind of trickle down to the athletes, right? So the disparity in those demographics, right? So there's a very tangible way that every few years, Dr. Lapchik and his crew put together these very rich pieces of work that are, are counting, right? Mm -hmm. We're just counting the numbers, mm -hmm. but we're thinking about what these shifts say when we say we've made all this progress, right? Have we actually? Mm -hmm. So for me, thinking about starting from that point of these disparities within journalism, these disparities within the front offices and of these various companies, um, I think for me, I'm really thinking about how it plays out not only for those that work, but for those of us that watch. Mm -hmm. um, and so one of the things that obviously it's, it's most transparent is when there is a labor dispute, whether it's an individual athlete, mm -hmm. whether it's a collective bargaining agreement or disagreement. Mm -hmm. um, and so that, those are the ways that we see it open up where it, it becomes a difference between we are a league versus we are owners and we are players. Or even the discussion around calling team owners, owners. Mm -hmm. um, this idea that this will, in, in calling them CEOs or calling them chairman or a board, a, a board or whatever we decide to, to recognize them as, will in some ways address the larger issues of ownership um, and these labor issues that will continue regardless, regardless mm -hmm. of what we call them. So I think for me, in general, I think about race as just one way in which these disparities, these operations of power um, continue across sport. Um, because it's not just laid in within race, it's always, it's mm -hmm. always gendered. Mm -hmm. And there's a huge class dynamic if we're thinking about labor. Mm -hmm. Even though we say, oh, these athletes make millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. For them to make millions of dollars, someone has to make billions of dollars. And so I think for me, I'm thinking about um, who's represented um, as much as I'm thinking about what they represent. So a front office represents something in terms of control, in terms of um, determining what um, what is okay within a league, how players can operate within a league both on and off of the court. And so the relationship between owners and the league itself, right, we think about commissioners, mm -hmm. that relationship is a very interesting and important one mm -hmm. when we think about things in terms of race, gender, and class. Because that to me is that's where these tensions play out. Um, and so I think the loyalties to a league in terms of its ownership versus its players or even how we separate them mm -hmm. always has a racial and class tinge to it that I find um, impossible to separate mm -hmm. as much as we, we say that we would like to. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Do you, I mean, you, you've, you know, you say every uh, so often this prof does this, these longitudinal studies and he counts a lot of numbers of, you know, who, who's in which positions. Mm -hmm. So you, there have been, there has been progress in terms of in certain categories of representation. Um, there are leagues that are better than others. others yeah. I think across the board, um, you know, these studies largely show it's stagnant. Right. Um, and what's interesting within sports journalism specifically, a, as Dr. Lapchik and others note, if you take ESPN out of it, mm -hmm. the numbers are terrible. Sure. If we're just looking at your papers and your local TV, mm -hmm. um, it, it's bad. Um, and so ESPN's numbers actually really, really help, but it's a massive corporation with a lot of people that mm -hmm. can help those numbers. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of airtime to fill for ESPN versus your local 10 o'clock sports coverage, right? Mm -hmm. Where there's one newscaster and there's a, he's typically, you know, of a particular age, race, class, right? So I think 
you know, thinking about those numbers and what might skew them, mm -hmm. we say, oh, he, and he gives them a letter grade, so you get an A, oh, B, C, F, right? Um, so yes, leagues like the WNBA, for example, employ a lot of women, a lot of black women, um, and so I think that those numbers look great, but how does that translate, um, I guess, to larger issues of inclusion or exclusion? Um, if they are the, the, the group that gets an A, but the, we're seeing the NFL that's, as, you know, maybe getting a C, um, and, and they actually have more power play in terms of not only media representation, but just kind of larger sports culture. Mm -hmm. um, that means something. Mm -hmm. Where is that value located? Mm -hmm. And are there new initiatives to address these disparities? I mean, obviously, the players are increasingly, they are finding increasing ways to in, uh, to amplify their own agency. So sure. social media is allowing it, collective bargaining is allowing it. Are those efforts having, bearing fruit? I mean, you say it's largely stagnant. Are there things being done? And you know, I'm, I mean, it makes perfect sense that in the WNBA, the, the numbers would be better. Mm -hmm. But what about these, you know, uh, the W, the the NBA and the NFL, those have got to be the big gorillas, right? So, right. what about that? What? Yeah. So the NBA is actually, I don't know what the latest report card that they received. They're called report cards, mm -hmm. which I love. Um, I think uh, the NBA is is far ahead of Major League Baseball, right, the NHL, um, and the NFL. The NBA is doing a great job in terms of placing in terms of, if you think about ownership, these moves that have been made, ownership and also coaching, right? Mm -hmm. We're thinking about, yep. we're seeing Becky Hammond that's mm -hmm. living an incredible career right now mm -hmm. in the NBA and there's so many assistant coaches that are coming in that are former WNBA players, right? So we're seeing that kind of crossover. Um, but to think about that in terms of like the programming, each one of these leagues may say they have programming that is to increase the number of women coaches, for example, or to get women into business, which can then translate to a front office. I think those initiatives um, are in many ways, I, I think my most optimistic is they are acknowledging there's an issue. <laughs> um, I think that the larger issue is how these particular positions um, are created, who finds out about them. This is not like a monster.com post, right, to become the CFO um, of the NBA, right? So so all the way that th these networks work, so they have networking nights, for example, you'll see that across every league, where it's women's networking, where women go and sit in a box at a game and meet with other women executives. Hmm. Um, and so I think that these initiatives are very much in the vein of like women's empowerment, you know, this is Sheryl Sandberg and Lean In, where we are addressing these larger institutional disparities by having a networking night um, and, and saying, okay, our work here is done. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think for me, it is, um, you know, I'm kind of positioned as like, well, what do you want, Courtney? Like, we're trying, we're doing this right, thing. Right, right, right. Um, but what I really, for me, is like not, not thinking about taking away the, the term owner or having a networking night. These things kind of barely chip away. These things leave the structure intact. Mm -hmm. um, and so whenever we see these larger issues, for example, with the Dallas Mavericks um, and the Carolina Panthers of this, these Me Too moments that are happening within sport, they illustrate why women aren't thriving within these industries, right? These various things that are occurring within the workplace. So for me, I think about these disparities and, and the same things operate at the ESPNs of the world. Mm -hmm. um, thinking about what these workplaces signify um, and who they signal to, um, I think explains a lot more of retention um, and, and, and the, even the general attraction of, 
of working in sport, whether that's in media or the front office itself. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm, I have a daughter who's a soccer player. Mm -hmm. So for her, the women's uh, American soccer team is incredible in every way. Yes. And they've, I mean, they're particularly interesting because they've used this platform that they've gotten and they have certain, I mean, the, the amount of people that watch, the amount of young people that are involved, to really try to make some changes uh, through their activism and through their uh, activities. Um, do you think those are useful, productive things to do? Is that a responsibility that all player leaders should embrace? You know, I really, truly like adore the U.S. Women's National yeah. Team. There's, there's like no way I can even begin to say like, both in terms of me as a sports fan, as a sports scholar, like I'm just fed in so many different ways. And we're, I don't want to take up the entire time, but we can talking about the U.S. Women's National Team. But, but I, this idea of the responsibility, um, I think, is a really important question. Mm -hmm. I imagine this, this fantasy world I have where you know, athletes that are considered parts of marginalized communities can just have the freedom to go play, right? This idea that, that there wouldn't be this extra obligation to speak out against various social injustices, that you could just go out and be compensated for your work. Mm -hmm. That is the fantasy. Right. Um, I, this idea of responsibility, I think, is tricky because I, I think a lot of times I have to think about what my own responsibility, this idea of like, if we want athletes to speak out, right, and stand up for these various things, what am I standing up for and doing in my own work, in my own everyday life? What am I doing for my students? What am I doing for my larger community, right? The various communities I'm a part of. Um, so I try to hold myself just as accountable. Um, I wanna say about them specifically that what they're doing is interesting because it is both using the platform that they are, they're being used in a particular way by Team USA, mm -hmm. by US soccer, mm -hmm. right? They're being used in a particular way by the World Cup, by the Olympics, by these various large mega sport factions. Mm -hmm. They're being used as like, girls can do anything, let girls play. They're going to be used in that way. So by them subverting that and saying, but you can't use it in this way because you haven't paid us. You can't because the men are flying private. You can't because look at how much better we are than them and mm -hmm. we are paid so much less mm -hmm. than them. So this idea of saying you can't use us and someone's gonna use them, Nike's gonna use them, sure. right? Yeah. The ads are beautiful, they're slick. Um, but the idea of saying, well, if we're gonna be used, this is gonna be our platform. If we're gonna go and dominate at the Women's World Cup, we're gonna have to dominate and have this message. You're gonna have to talk to us about it at every press conference. I think that's a really important, beautiful thing. I love that model of it's happening, they're gonna use us, how are we gonna use this to mm -hmm. illustrate this thing they're hoping we don't talk about. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But, and for, for men of color though, it's, much, it's more complicated, isn't it? I mean, mm -hmm. look at the Colin Kaepernick situation and all of the, uh, men, you know, football players of color who took a knee mm -hmm. and the incredible criticism they got. Yeah. It's a quite different than the sort of reception of the, uh, the women's national team in soccer, isn't it? Um, uh, yes and no. Uh -huh. I think that there are ways that women are critiqued for uh -huh. um, our sportsmanship, mm -hmm. right, mm -hmm. sportsmanship, right, right, right. or lack thereof. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, you know, think about how mad people were about the sipping tea yeah. gesture. Yeah. You know, yeah. it, you know it, it to me harkens back to the various ways in which, especially I'm thinking about the NFL specifically, black men's bodies are, you know, the end zone celebration is seen as like, this isn't sportsmanship, this isn't the way the game should be played. Mm -hmm. I see so much of that that's kind of put on to the 
them. You know, Megan Rapinoe is doing too much. She's too flashy. She's too cocky. Um, so there, there's that. There's these little ways that they're also kind of like, you're doing too much. This is where you should be. Mm -hmm. That happens to women athletes, to athletes of color in general. Um, but what I think, this idea of the difference in thinking about um, various NFL players, for example, I'm thinking about how solidarity works differently mm -hmm. across men's sports versus women's mm -hmm. sports. Mm -hmm. And I'm and specifically I'm thinking about before Colin Kaepernick took a knee, the WNBA um, the summer before that NFL season had a, a couple of different protests uh, against police brutality. Mm -hmm. And um, they were all team-wide, whether they were posting on Instagram, whether they were doing things pre-game. Black athletes and white athletes were out right. there together. They were all doing things. Everything they did was together, mm -hmm. um, even when teams were taking knees. I saw that even at the high school level, yeah. high school girls basketball. Yep. Yep. Everyone's doing a thing together mm -hmm. versus, okay, you can go do that over there. And, you know, even on that, that week of, like, gentrifying, taking a knee, it was like the hand on the shoulder, you know, or we're all going to, you know, the Jerry Jones, like, we're all going to do this thing, and then it's over. Mm. Um, and so I'm interested in, in why that happens. This idea of the U.S. Women's National we can all come together about a particular cause, or Megan Rapinoe, before all of this, takes a knee, right, even when she's playing um, outside of the parameters of US, the U.S. Women's National Team. So I'm thinking about what it is about the potential of sport within solidarity mm -hmm. and how white athletes on the women's side are operating very differently than their male counterparts and, and why that also might be. Mm -hmm. um, and I think some of that is like identifying with a particular struggle, your struggle as a woman in sport may open you up to maybe understanding other disparities and various inequities within society. Mm -hmm. That's a guess. Mm -hmm. There's nothing well, but, but empirical it, to support it, that. It does it does indicate why intersectional analysis is crucial in the work that you do. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, tell us about the research that you do on girls and women's participation in basketball around the world. Yeah, so for me, this is something that started with the Sparks and thinking about what is this We Are Women campaign? What is it supposed to do? What is it actually doing? Um, and thinking about the, success, the successes and failures of that campaign um, kind of made me think about I'm studying these WNBA players who play for a few months mm -hmm. in the summer, mm -hmm. and then the majority of them play overseas for the rest of the year. Um, and I thought, it's hard for me to tell the story of women's basketball, women's professional basketball, if I'm limiting myself to the U.S., because that's not where they are. Um, and their absence in the U.S. explains, you know, why the league isn't marketed year-round, why we only hear about them in the summer. And so I followed a player that I had met while I was at the Sparks. And, you know, when I first started talking to her about her experiences, she went to Italy. I was already seeing myself in Italy. I was like, <laughs> I'm going to be doing all this very cool research. And so I connect with her. She was like, definitely not next season, you know, come hang out with me. Um, and the next season she was in Russia. Mm -hmm. And so that was a little different than my pasta fantasies, <laughs> right? Um, and so I find myself going from, at the time I was living in Los Angeles, to the middle of winter in Russia. And I'm kind of thrown into that same kind of mix that a lot of these athletes find themselves, where every season you're in a different country mm -hmm. and you're kind of trying to find your bearings, you're getting paid way more than you are in the States, right? So Russia, China, and Turkey are three of the highest paying mm -hmm. um, leagues outside, you know, and to think about those various countries and their gender politics is really interesting because they're paying women more mm -hmm. than the U.S., which is kind of espousing a certain kind of freedom and equity that is not playing out in terms of their paychecks. And so for me, 
me, um, I got to see not only kind of like what it's like to navigate that space as an American in a particular moment. I'm there in 2018. So thinking about these athletes and talking to other athletes that were like, oh, I was actually in Russia during the 2016 presidential election. You know, what that must be like for them politically and culturally and economically, right? That's a decision mm -hmm. that you make to go over there. For me, that carried me there. And then from there, I kind of started to try to find other women working in basketball that are also kind of crossing over. So I find a woman that's creating leagues in Paris. Mm. She's from Senegal. Mm. She's creating girls' leagues in Paris, girls' and women's leagues where there aren't any. Um, and then she's also taking that to Senegal where she's from. So she's also kind of crossing over and navigating these spaces and also kind of using this moment of empowerment to kind of fund this larger project, right? Mm -hmm. So she's selling stuff online, using social media um, to kind of amplify her cause. As a, a journalist, she starts out as a journalist that's also trying to create space for girls and women in multiple countries. And so I'm kind of trying to think about, first of all, what? Why are you doing this? Why are you playing overseas in mm -hmm. Russia in the middle of winter? Mm -hmm. Why are you spending all of your resources to create these leagues for girls and women? So also their motivations, right? As well as the various things that are working against them at all times that they know, they all acknowledge, like I'm working in a very male dominated industry, right? And so I'm interested in both like the pleasure they get from, the, from sport, mm -hmm. right? Even this thing that doesn't love you back in mm -hmm. the same way mm -hmm. as a woman. Um, and so I'm interested in what they're doing, what they're, their motivations and the ways that they're creating kind of, you know, I'm using the crossover, the basketball move as this way that they're kind of kind of shaking and kind of breaking the ankles of mm. the various things that are in their way. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's kind of how I'm thinking about these very, mo these places that don't seem like they fit together are kind of uh, sewn together for me through basketball and through the women that I'm talking to and kind of experiencing these moments with. Fascinating, really awesome project. So we've got about three minutes left. This is probably gonna be my last question. Um, I have to ask you about the decision by the NCAA this week to start letting the athletes who make millions and billions of dollars for these institutions and these companies start to get some of the money from their labor. Yeah. Um, what's, um, just as an opinion question, what's, what's your view about this development? You know, for me, a lot of this, um, you know, I, we can talk about the Gavin Newsom in California right. specifically, mm -hmm. that law as a catalyst. Yes. I think that whenever we think about social change or like these big shifts potentially, which I think this is a significant mm -hmm. shift, um, there's all these little pieces. It's the Northwestern football players trying to unionize. You know, yep. it's like all these various moments that are along the way. Um, there are various people that are saying, well, we'll create our own leagues and pay athletes, mm -hmm. right? All of those people are also part of this. So I think this is part of a longer lineage that is like, goes all the way back. This is Ed O'Bannon, right? This is the NCAA video game. There are all these little chips that are being made into the structure of the NCAA as a nonprofit. Are we still really doing that? <laughs> um, the NCAA as a place for amateurism, yeah. right? Are we're, we're getting rid of that, right? Yeah. So all these little myths that have been built around the NCAA, it's history, it's function, the student athlete as a concept. Um, I believe that this particular moment signifies all the work of all of those people before. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think what it signifies is the beginning of the end of the NCAA. This mm -hmm. is, again, my fantasy wildest dreams, right? The, the, the NCAA cannot stand as it is, and it's having all of these people from all these different angles that are calling it out, that have been calling it out. Mm -hmm. um, and so this is a moment of reckoning for the NCAA, and this is its kind of feeble offering 
in return. And I just don't think anyone's buying it. I, I haven't seen it. I, I see it as a, people are seeing it as a victory, but I'm seeing it read as a victory that's on its way to a larger dismantling of the NCAA as it stands. Well, everything I've heard has said exactly what you've said, yeah. that it's, that their days are numbered. Yeah. I think it's inevitable. And they feel it. They feel it, they're afraid. Yeah. yeah. So, 30 seconds left, final question. What attracted you to the University of Oregon? Uh, well, it is the sports town. <laughs> um, and it's something that I, I didn't quite comprehend. You see it, you feel it, you hear track town. Yeah. Um, I'm a huge track and field fan. Mm -hmm. And so I think that for me, I knew there would be a sports vibe, but there's something about being here and there's an energy around sports and interest and respect for sports that I think also translates to the work. And I'm so, I'm so excited to be here because I feel like I'm energized in my work um, going forward. And I think it's going to be a great place for me, both personally and professionally to kind of move forward in this next stage. Great, well thank you so much, Courtney, for taking the time to speak with us today. It's been really interesting and best of luck on all your projects, they're so fascinating. Thank you so much. I've been speaking with Courtney Cox, Assistant Professor of Race and Sport in the Department of Indigenous Race and Ethnic Studies at the University of Oregon. She joined the UO faculty in the fall of 2019. Thanks so much for watching. <laughs>